Take a network break. Pass around the virtual donuts as we trip the light fantastic through the week's networking and IT news. We got a slew of product announcements from VMware Explorer, uh, end of life on some Cisco ISRs, a multi-million dollar SolarWinds settlement, and more. We're sponsored today by Juniper SD-WAN. Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI, simplifies network deployments and operations with a highly scalable solution, an intuitive management platform, and enhanced visibility into end user experiences. IT can deploy networks faster and repair issues with alacrity. Sign up today at juniper.net slash sdwan-demo to see for yourself. That's juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. Uh, and if you like Network Break, check out our other podcasts, including Day2 Cloud, Heavy Networking, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, Heavy Strategy, and Kubernetes Unpacked. It's nerdy tech analysis and compelling conversations about infrastructure, cloud, professional development, and more. It's all at packetpushers.net. All right, Greg, let's get into some news. Uh, VMware Explorer uh, was happening this week, so a bunch of stuff came out. Uh, we'll start with VMware adding a client option to its SD-WAN product. The client software lets companies connect remote and home users on desktops, laptops, and smartphones to cloud and on-prem apps after first passing through a VMware SASE point of presence. Yeah, this is great, I think. This is what we're seeing a number of other SD-WAN slash SASE slash SSE providers doing is they're saying, um, the natural progression to grow their revenue is to say, why are we having a separate remote access VPN? You shouldn't have to have a VPN concentrator connected to, you know, and then try and match the policies of those users against people that are in branches. And by adding the client directly to the SD-WAN, um, this means that you can have the same policy engine, the same policy templates, the same security for branch as you do for remote users. So I think this is something that everybody in the SD-WAN is going to do or going to have to do in the very near future. Yeah, I agree. Um, and especially given the fact that lots of people are now working remotely, so they're not even in the branch behind that uh, SD-WAN gateway anymore anyway. So if you want to get them into that uh, SD-WAN network mm. and do all those good things like you know uh, monitoring, uh, doing security and all that, uh, then having the client right on the yeah. desktop makes sense. It's very much about logging what the user's doing controlling access to resources, whether they're in the public cloud somewhere or off-prem somewhere. Like everything's off-prem when you're working remotely, right? right? So whether it's in the data center, you want to make sure that it's encrypted, you want to make sure the user's safe, that their laptop's not being compromised. And so this is the best way. So And then, but you don't want to have one team running an SD-WAN and another team running the VPN and the SD-WAN's got all of these great tools. And then all of a sudden the remote access users like, I've got an IPsec VPN and it's trash. You know, it's just not. <laughs> not, not to mention same. if that IPsec VPN is going to a gateway somewhere, you know, in your central office and then backhauling back out to the cloud, and so performance is yeah. bad and all that. Yeah. So this uh, gets yeah. around. Yeah. So that. this is this to me is just a natural progression of the product. It's not surprising. We've seen several others. Fortinet's done a similar sort of thing. What's unique about the VMware solution is, of course, they have the pops in the cloud, so they have the backbone bypass, and users will always go and connect to the pop somewhere. And they talk about in their documentation being 80% of people are within 10 milliseconds of a of one of the pops. And that's supposed to be better. Doesn't mean your packets are actually faster. It just means that you get into the pop quicker. And then they talk about f less than five milliseconds from all major content service providers. Again, you've still got to get across the backbone, but those pops are theoretically closer to the backbones and should, in principle, have a faster path across the backbone. So that means that the IPsec client, oh, sorry, it's not a IPsec, it's a DTLS. This is an acquisition, Ananda Networks, and that's somebody who had been building a remote access VPN around DTLS. So these people will VPN into the POPs, not to any of your SD-WAN appliances, and then the policy from the backbone infrastructure is then applied. So seems to me, like, conceptually, in terms of the architecture, this makes sense. You're getting... It operates the same as an SD-WAN. 
gets all the policies, the SASE orchestrator, you get the orchestration tools, same authentication, all that sort of stuff. So I think, it, you know, in the right way. And it's probably maybe the only announcement from VMware Explorer in Barcelona that's actually new, I think. I, yeah, it seems like we'll have to get into that as we get through. Um, just a couple of details. You mentioned that the, this uh, client is coming from an acquisition of Ananda Networks. They were a startup. Uh, I actually wrote about them, I think, back in 2020. Um, and at the time, the clients they supported were Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. Uh, no smartphone OSs yet and no update from VMware on uh, what platforms they're supporting, but I assume it's Windows, Mac OS, and Linux out of the box. Um, yeah. The client, besides uh, attaching you to one of these gateways, can also perform device posture checks uh, and influence access policies and do, you know, the enforce access based on user identity. Um, also, it seems like they're bringing in some elements of zero trust network access or ZTNA, uh, which makes sense because that seems to be the way the SD-WAN and SASE markets are going. Well, you would have to. If you're doing remote access, you have to do authentication somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so makes sense to just go straight for zero trust and, and integrate with your identity management. And if you're going to add a policy engine, you go straight out to the whole zero trust thing. So, you know, be Okta, Duo, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and you mentioned the POPs uh, as a part of the news announcement. VMware says it's adding 16 new POPs for this SD-WAN and SASE offerings. Uh, these new POPs are primarily showing up in the Asia-Pacific, Japan region, and EMEA. Uh, VMware says total POPs now between what it's built itself and with partners is uh, 200 around the world. Yeah, a bit slow, I think. Maybe it seems to me like since they acquired the VMware as VeloCloud, that's been slow to adapt. But then keep in, I have to tell them, remind myself that VMware is you know, facing acquisition by Broadcom and there's a lot of money they can't spend and things they can't do. They have to be at standstill while the acquisition goes through. And so perhaps some of the things that they might have done um, are being delayed or, you know, this is something they have to do to keep customers happy and so otherwise they might not spend the money or complete these projects. So maybe that's where that's coming from. Uh, some more details about the acquisition. I haven't. Th there's not a lot uh, from VMware about it. Uh, Ananda has raised six million to date. I don't know how much uh, VMware bought them for, and I'm curious if this uh, acquisition uh, was in process before the Broadcom acquisition. My assumption is it would be, or it's not significantly material. So, mm -hmm. if they acquired them for you know a few tens of millions, say a five x or a seven x multiple on the mm -hmm. latest valuation, then. You know, if they picked it up for 20, 30, 40 million, it might just not relevant, not, not significant. Just take that as cash down the back of the sofa sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, moving on, other announcements. VMware is announcing an XDR offering or extended detection and response. The product is called VMware Carbon Black XDR. The company says it can identify threats and help customers, quote, make better informed decisions in applying prevention policies. The XDR capabilities using telemetry from VMware Contexa, which was announced back in June of 2022. Contexa is a threat intelligence service from VMware that analyzes logs, alerts, events, and network flows from VMware endpoints, VMs, and VMware networking. Yeah, this one caught me by surprise. This wasn't in the media kit that I received from VMware, which is normally where I go to find these things. So they must have either snuck it in at the last minute or there was some sort of disconnect internally. Um, this basically appears to be that they're implying the context of threat intelligence cloud solution that they've got, and they're starting to connect it up to more parts of it. Is that basically makes sense? I guess I'm not really sure based, I, I read about the Contexa announcement and I'm not really sure what the difference is between Contexa and XDR. They both sound like entirely the same thing. Maybe the XDR has more tie-ins to, you know, uh, VMware instances that can, you know, apply security policies based on what it finds. I'm not really sure how the two are different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not, it's not clear to me at all. And, you know, they talk about it being one is cloud and maybe the XDR stuff is more data center based, you know, on-prem cloud and 
And then there's an XDR alliance, which is a partnership of cybersecurity companies who are actually exchanging threat intelligence engines. So maybe that's where it comes from. Yeah, maybe we'll have to do some more digging on this. But uh, initially, mm. on the announcement, there was not a lot I could find or poking around on the VMware website. But we'll update. Yeah, the you press release is, is unclear exactly what's happening. So sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there are a bunch of other announcements from uh, VMware Explorer. We'll wrap up with this final one, uh, a partnership between VMware and Equinix. You can now run VMware Cloud. That's VMware's infrastructure as a service version of VMware on Equinix Metal. Equinix Metal is a hardware as a service offering, which gets you access to single tenant servers that you can uh, quickly provision with a GUI or API calls. Yeah, weirdly, this is uh, something that I've seen come up in some discussions more and more lately, the idea of basically having a cloud of bare metal machines, and that's what Equinox, of course, is a data center come yes. pop, come bandwidth company, and this is bound. And they're saying, well, we've got these data centers and these telco pops. You can use our bare metal service there and we'll rent them out to you per hour, per day, and all that sort of stuff. And it turns out that for a lot of businesses, that's actually quite a desirable thing. So if you can imagine somebody who's like a CDN and they want to, or maybe we talked about VMware's SD-WAN and the other thing, you want to put a pop somewhere, you could just spin it up on a on an Equinix bare metal and claim that you've got a pop, right? Without having to go and negotiate for space and power and SLAs and you know all that sort of stuff. That's all Equinix's problem. So this is very popular with startups who don't want to be stuck in clouds, uh, other people's clouds, with the costing structure there where they're paying very handsomely for other people to run certain parts of it. And we're seeing this increasingly where people are actually deploying Kubernetes tools onto these bare metal solutions so they don't have to pay the high prices um, of on-prem, off-prem clouds that you see a lot of the time. And that's very popular with investors these days who are starting to realize that the cost of Azure and AWS is very high. And they're at, to some extent, those companies can't determine their profitability because it's a lot of it is taken by, you know, the clouds that they run those systems on. And so this is very popular. So to see this where VMware is saying, well, we're going to make our tools available, you can press a button and Equinix will let it happen and all the licensing and the pricing will all be handled is actually probably a good thing for VMware. Otherwise, they'd miss out on this. Yeah, I think uh, we're hearing a lot more about edge use cases where you want uh, some compute locally for reasons, be it uh, speed of processing, be it uh, sovereignty, privacy, and you don't want to do it in a multi-tenant cloud. So this gives you single tenancy on the bare metal stuff. Um, I think that's probably the use cases they're going for. And, yeah, and, and at the same time, you also don't have to, you know, Go to a colo, get the space, rack up the power, rack up all the servers and stuff. It's it's all ready and waiting, I guess, with a few clicks, and then you yeah. load up your your VMware cloud and get your workloads, and off you go. That's it. Yep. And apparently, from what I've uh, been told from talking to people, is that the API is sane and the technology actually more or less works. So, considering that Equinix has been building it for about for a few years now, and I've never really picked up on it because it always seemed to be a bit of a stretch, but apparently it's um, becoming more and more popular as a as a mid stop between, you know, hosting something in AWS or Azure with all the problems that that comes with, uh, and not having to do something on prem but still being on bare metal where you can control your costs. Right. It's kind of it's sort of like on prem light or <laughs> on prem as a service. Well, I think maybe. It's, it's kind of, you know, that idea of going out to a colo, buying, you know, X number of square meters of space or X number of kilowatts of space, you know, and cooling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then how much do you need? And if you need more, where do you go? Right. right. If you're, you know, if you suddenly go say, well, I'm going to buy 10 racks worth of space, but you only use five. Is that wasted money planning for growth? Or is mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Like, sure. So if you just go and buy the bare metal while you're building something out, 
And then at some point when you get to a stable consumption, you move from bare metal into a, you know, exactly a right-sized physical solution, and that might be it. And you've still got the option of moving it to the cloud because you're still using containers, orchestration, APIs to do all of the setup and the management and the scaling and everything. So there's plenty of room in there. Yeah, if you're a VMware shop and you want to move that workload from mm-hmm. you know this uh, VMware IaaS into a VMware on AWS or Azure, I'm sure they will welcome you with open arms. Yeah, and as always, it's important for a startup to be able to be terminated with a minimum of fuss. People who run startups don't want to spend a year cleaning up the pieces and getting rid of all of the assets and you know so forth. They would much rather just turn it all off and be done. <laughs> I guess that's one way to look at it too. Yeah. Easy to shut down when things go south. Easy to start. Yeah, you give the kid, you give the give the people working in the startup their laptops and and tell them to take their chairs home, get someone in to clean the desks out, and then you know <laughs> shut down the shut down the workloads, and then you're done. All clean. Just sell the IP off to anybody who you think you can stitch them up for. So that's how it works. That's how it works. All right, uh, moving on. Network ASIC maker Marvell has announced it's moving into operational technology or OT networks. They're used to run industrial systems such as electrical grids. Uh, and to that end, Marvell is rolling out ASICs and FIs that support Ethernet time-sensitive networking or TSN standards. Yeah, they've got some Arista naming disease going on over there where they've got to give industrial networks a fancy name. True. I noticed it when you wrote this, you didn't put capital O, capital T on the operational technology. Oh, sorry, That's, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't do my initial capping. Yeah, I apologize uh, to the uh, the branding <laughs> folks. So basically, this is campus networking, but it's in industrial or uh, specific types of environments where you're looking for time sensitive networking or determinant which uses deterministic Ethernet. So this guarantees packet delivery and also guarantees latency across an Ethernet fabric, which is not something you could normally do, but there's certain extensions to Ethernet that if you're doing TSN, time sensitive networking, you can do. The chips are ruggedized to work from minus 40 degrees C up to plus 85 C. So they're suitable for use in, well, harsh environments. Let's say harsh-ish. How's that? Sure. <laughs> and they've got an expected lifetime of at least 10 years in those environments, which is very different to normal enterprise gear. And they also talk about uh, the thing that really caught my eye was they're actually also recognizing that these devices may be in places with poor physical security. And so they actually come with a standard secure boot cycle so that if anybody tampers with it, you'll know. And they can't just start loading images without certain types of external approvals. And they also do MacSec by default. So that's really interesting to me that they're sort of realizing that that physical aspect of being able to get to the switch makes you vulnerable. And presumably the ASIC's got a range. It's a Prestira ASIC. And they're also partnering it with a set of FIs, which is interesting. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a, I, I, the whole integration of IT networking and OT networking is interesting. Um my assumption was always that SCADA system should be on a, a separate non-Ethernet network um, because you don't want uh, attacks bleeding over from uh, IT, uh, the internet, <laughs> into these systems. But uh, it seems like everything's going Ethernet. And so, okay, Marvel is taking advantage of that. Well, it turns out that when you do that, the lesson that we learned over the years is that when you have multiple networks and you have them isolated, the one that's isolated doesn't get secured. And SCADA networks are highly unsafe because nobody's pen testing them, nobody... You know, there's just not. So once we connect them to the Ethernet, we'll go through the pain. And but that's that's basically what the lesson we learned over the years that 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 isolated networks don't work. I mean, obscurity through security is always a, a bad idea. Uh, but I don't necessarily <laughs> buy yeah. buy the notion that just moving them to Ethernet will suddenly you know get them into. Well, look at it this way: the things that didn't get connected to the Internet are still getting take, still getting owned. True. True. So 
you know, at the end of the day, it's just a quick, yes, you can isolate it, but at the end of the day, you actually haven't solved the underlying issue. Right. So, and that's something that we've proven over and over, over the last 20, 30 years. So it really, everything connected is ultimately the safest way. When we started putting everything on the internet, security started to improve. So. All right, moving on, uh, Cisco's announcing end of life and end of sale for routers in its ISR family, including the ISR 4200, the 4300, and select 4400 series platforms. Uh, products are no longer going to be sold as of November 7th in 2023, so next year. Uh, software maintenance is going to end in 2025, and security fixes will stop in 2028. Yeah, so as usual, Cisco's giving plenty of notice that products are being end of life, not as much as they used to, but they're giving more notice to say these products are going out of fashion. And we're not going to have the color, you know, this particular type of product in our lineup anymore. I always approach EOL notices with sort of like, are they end of lifing this because there's a better product out or there's an advance and this is obsolete? Or are they end of lifing it because they want to get people to buy new products? Uh, so one of the things that we see a lot is that companies like F5, for example, will obsolete a range of existing hardware platforms and then go out to customers and convince them all to upgrade. There was actually not much need to do so and the new systems didn't do much that the old ones didn't, but it meant a big difference to F5's bottom line. So I always look at these and go like, "Mm, is this necessary or is this just a reason to go out and churn customers over to a new platform? And I can't tell in this case because I'm not that familiar with these products. Skepticism is always warranted when it comes with selling hardware, yeah. Follow the money. Yes. I've got a link in the show notes that has the full details from Cisco on all of the devices, all the parts, and all the timelines. So if you're looking to start making your plans around these ISR models, uh, go check that out. Uh, We'll pause for a quick break uh, from our sponsor, Juniper, about Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI. Imagine if your network could recognize and support users and their applications, optimize experiences and productivity. You can attend one of Juniper Network's live AI-driven SD-WAN demos to discover game-changing insights and automation from client to cloud. You can see how unprecedented session-based visibility and fine-grained application-aware session-smart routing brings huge benefits. Juniper SD-WAN, driven by Mist AI, simplifies network deployments and ops with a highly scalable solution and intuitive management platform platform and enhance visibility into end user experiences. IT users can save time getting their networks deployed and repairing network issues faster than ever before. Juniper provides superior user experience with a session-oriented architecture that can reduce latency by up to 60%. Juniper users experience noticeable improvements to application performance and critical voice and video calls. And thanks to a unique tunnel-free architecture, customers can expect up to 75% reduction in head-end infrastructure costs and up to a 50% reduction in bandwidth costs. If you want to see it for yourself, sign up for a demo today at juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. That's juniper.net slash sdwan-demo. We thank Juniper for being a sponsor. Uh, back to the news. You may recall that uh, SolarWinds debacle in which attackers were able to add malicious code to software that SolarWinds shipped to its customers, getting backdoor access to corporations and government entities. Uh, now the company has agreed to pay $26 million to settle a shareholder lawsuit. Yeah, so you'll remember the big vulnerability. I can't remember the actual name of the vulnerability itself that came out where SolarWinds was and their code was hacked. And so... Uh, hackers were able to get in, and then as people patched their solar winds, they were actually installing uh, backdoors into the their networks. Solar winds network monitoring was actually the leverage point, and there was a, a whole lot of stuff that happened, and it was believed to be or proven to be Russian spies at the time. And this time, it was actually uh, shareholders have claimed that because. SolarWinds didn't do enough and the share price dropped as a result of that. They've managed to squeeze a $26 million, uh, payout as a shareholder lawsuit. Uh, there's a you, you have to believe in the theory that 
uh, all, everything that happens to a share price is fraud. If you, you know, if <laughs> if your company gets hacked and you didn't tell customers that you could get hacked, then the share price drops, then you can get money back because that was fraudulent. So, but I think the important part here is that shareholders are saying they got 26 million for this. But what we still have to see is that SolarWinds is still being investigated by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, uh-huh. who are looking to take more serious action. So I think it's going to get worse for SolarWinds, not better. Yeah, I thought $26 million was a pretty lowball number given the magnitude of the attack and also the the drop in the stock price because of it. Uh, so in some ways, I feel like SolarWinds getting off uh, pretty easily here, but we'll see what happens with the further SEC yeah, action. Yeah, I didn't think they'd didn't think their share price dropped all that much when I looked it up, you know, didn't really bother their share price. They actually unloaded a, a, a part of their business at the same time. So it was very difficult to tell how much of it was related to the breach, but they haven't been able to come back. I think a lot of customers were chased out of SolarWinds and looked to turn away and replace that with something else. And so they, they haven't had the growth that they were having before and they're not the company that they once were for sure. So I think there's been an impact, but still, you know, without a direct impact and, you know, people going getting criminal records or being slapped on the wrist. Um, I'm still not questioning. Although there was a big article this week, apparently the cyber insurance industry is struggling with the number of claims against them. I was trying to find the article before we got on the air to complement this piece, but apparently there is a serious problem going on in the cyber insurance industry where there's so many claims being made that the existing pool, the insurance pool, is not enough to cover it. And we may actually have no cyber insurance going forward or the policy costs will be so high. And that's part of it is because of what's happened with companies like SolarWinds and others. And if that continues, we may actually see a serious transition in the security industry. I've talked about that a few times before, so I won't belabor it here today. Uh, it, it's so frustrating because if the uh, insurance industry had bothered to ask anyone, they would have been told this is probably the likely outcome unless you're doing some real due diligence on what your customers controls are and how they operationalize them. So yeah, not a surprise that uh, cyber insurance is, is facing a lot of payouts. Uh, anyone could have told them about this. So, Yeah, apparently Lloyd's of London, which is the biggest reinsurer, is actually talking about cancelling cyber insurance completely. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So, which tells you a uh, lot. <laughs> which tells you a lot because those people don't like to miss out on a chance of you know getting no. some money. So. I, I mean, I assume they walked into this thinking, great, free money, and then realized uh, what they just uh, – it walked right into a buzzsaw. So yeah, yeah. I don't think they expected it to be as bad as it was, and but apparently a lot of these costs are just not capped. And it's <laughs> Did they not read the to... news? I don't really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, once you take an insurance policy, you can claim as much as you want, right? Right. <laughs> but then the cost of the claims and the cost of the, you know, you have to send out the assessor who has to decide. And then if you're trying to say, well, you know, this loss cost me two hundred million. Well, how do you prove that, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, anyway, moving on, uh, the movie theater chain AMC is partnering with Zoom to bring Zoom meetings to AMC theaters. The idea is to let companies hold meetings and virtual events uh, over a familiar platform while being able to pack a large number of people into a single space. I don't know, Drew. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> if you think that the future of remote work is video conferencing, is putting them in a theater so that you can stream to them a thing, um, does feel a little odd. But I also thought maybe there's a case where you want to stream to a your entire workforce in one thing. So, you know, come to the theatre and we can sack you in one piece and on your way out we'll give you your termination papers. Is yeah, that? yeah, and some popcorn. Yeah, and some popcorn and, you know, maybe a free T-shirt or something mm-hmm. as you go to make you feel nice. I also thought to myself, I wonder if we'll see virtual theatre or virtual comedy. So the idea is you go there and then the Zoom would come up and then you'd actually have a streamed theatre experience going on. Do you think that's that's realistic? 
I suppose that is. I mean, I think hmm. the few times I've been to the theater recently, I, they they do things like you know, oh, we're going to stream uh, an opera production for opera fans and come see it in the theater if you can't be in say New York City mm-hmm. where it's being held live. So that's that's been happening for me. I think you know, movie theaters are getting crushed because of the pandemic. Uh, so they're looking for any opportunity to to juice revenue and take advantage of all that infrastructure they've got sitting there, all these empty theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why not open it up to business meetings and Zoom? Uh, and I could see some companies, you know, with distributed workforce and everybody's you know working from home or working remotely, if you need to get people together for whatever reason, a new product launch, some kind of training or something, then sure, why not send them into a theater where they got comfy seats and they can get mm. snacks and I don't know, I could see it happening. What about conferences? Like, you know, you could have a conference I where- I thought you know, about that. Like, yeah, instead of uh, everybody going mm. to Las Vegas and you really want to see that keynote, uh, but you want to do it with other people, I guess you could go mm. to the theater. I don't know that, but yeah, maybe a conference could work. I too. mean, it I, sounds like a good idea, but then you start thinking about it and you go like, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, <laughs> do, do I like, want to go? Do I, I want to go to a theater just to watch a, a, something I can stream at home? Yeah, I could watch it on the toilet instead, sort of thing. It's like, well, right? <laughs> it's a difficult one. I mean, there might be some things like, but I could imagine a company who's got a lot of employees and they want to do some sort of training or update, get them all into the theater and then stream, and the you know the CEO can talk to them or whatever. There are. There are use cases, but I don't, I'm not entirely sure that there's enough of a use case, um, and maybe we'll see. I, I don't see this being the future of work, let's say that, uh, but no. there are corner cases where I could see it being potentially effective, yeah. And yeah I do see a, great, a gap for theatre and uh, entertainment perhaps in there, though, that, that if somebody can take care of, you know. Could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe you want to, you know, for the Game of Thrones finale, go watch it in a theatre with a bunch of people. I don't know, but yeah. Mm. I was thinking more like a comedy act, you know, have it, they're sitting in a studio delivering it and streaming it to five theatres or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that could mm. be too. Yep, be a lot better than a business meeting. Mm. All right, our last story for today, uh, Starlink satellite broadband is now going to come with a monthly data usage cap of one terabyte. Uh, customers that go over the cap will get downgraded speeds unless they pay 25 uh, cents per gigabyte for overages. Yeah, I take this as a sign that Starlink is struggling for capacity and resources. They did originally promised that there would never be any bandwidth caps. Uh, when I say they, I mean Elon Musk on Twitter. Um, there's no, it doesn't actually say that in the terms and conditions, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, and they say on the note that Starlink is a finite resource that will continue to grow as we launch additional satellites. To serve the greatest number of people with high-speed internet, we must manage the network to balance the Starlink supply with user demand. In other words, people are using too much bandwidth. And, of course, when someone's using the network, uh, that bandwidth is not available to other people, and both in spectrum and in terms of backbone capacity. So, in your local cell, you know, you're only talking like there's a couple of hundred megs in a particular physical area or geospace. And so, you really have to do this. And Starlink is limited in its current form, it doesn't have enough satellites uh, up yet. And my understanding is that until Starship starts to fly on a regular basis, which was supposed to have happened last year or something. Some you know the usual claims that you get, you know that will change things because then they'll be able to launch many, many more satellites in a single launch, much more cost effectively. As I say, so I don't see a time in the near future when a cap on space networks would ever be removed. There just isn't enough spectrum, and there's not much incentive for apps to use less bandwidth. By the way, just something to think about. I was actually reading a Twitter thread by an ex-employee who was talking about he made a small change to the app to get a bandwidth reduction of forty percent. 
Apparently, all he did was zip up the logs that were collected by the client because every click, every swipe, every everything is mm-hmm. sent up to the servers. Mm-hmm. And all he did was uh, gzip that client and then send it over the internet to get 40% less bandwidth. Wow. And so there's not a lot of incentive for that. He was only doing it because they were trying to penetrate the African market and they were using too much bandwidth. So mm-hmm. just our point is that there's no incentives for most companies to be bothered saving bandwidth, so they're not going to. Uh, I will note that uh, in its fair usage policy describing why they're doing this, Starlink says uh, it's to ensure that a small number of customers using a lot of data don't negatively affect other customers. So I do wonder if there's a few super users out there uh, that Starlink has its eye on. You probably know who you are um, and making it bad for everybody else. Difficult one. I think mainly for people who are doing SD-WAN and using Starlink, you may have an issue there because a terabyte could be a lot or it could be a little, depending on how you're using it. Right, depending on what you're using it for, yeah. Links in the show notes. Uh, one final thing, uh, Greg, you had uh, a few thoughts on supply chain, uh, Ukraine, nuclear bombs and so on. What, what's this? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that happened this week, we talk about supply chain occasionally and I thought this was, you know, nothing's really changed, so that supply chain's improving. But one thing that changed this week was that China and India and geopolitically have spoken out strongly against the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine by Russia. So Putin has been out threatening to use nuclear weapons. and Most people haven't given it too much credence. But now that China and India are out there, Russia now needs China and India to buy its raw materials, especially oil. But but they also need to buy food and manufactured goods from someone to run its economy. Uh And without China and India on its side, it can't sustain itself. It's not a self-sustaining economy in its own right. So it has limited capacity to manufacture products. And it's also got a very limited capacity to grow foodstuffs because Ukraine was actually the breadbasket of Russia, as it uh-huh. turns out. Uh-huh. Um, so it, all of a sudden, since China and India came out with statements, Russia stopped talking about nuclear. Now, this has an impact um, because the markets now don't feel like there's going to be a we're on the verge of nuclear war. And so, <laughs> which was a problem sort of about a week ago over the last, say, seven to 14 days ago. Now it seems to have stabilized and supply chain should stabilize. It should lead to a more stable stock market as well, perhaps less threats to the inflation cycle. That would be nice. It'd be nice to take a uh, global thermonuclear war off my uh, things to worry about list. Uh, well, least. it's it's still a risk. It, <laughs> I, I know it's still a risk, but it yeah. I'm, I'm de-escalating from uh, yellow uh, to green now, I guess, instead of red where it was. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that it's it'll be interesting. Anything's possible with Russia. You just never know with dictators. But I think at this point, the general realization is that if they did it, they would actually be extremely damaging to any future of the Russian economy. So it's off the table. We haven't seen them say anything since those comments came out. Right. And China in particular has been sort of Russia's backdoor sort of into the global economy for materials and trade and so on. And if China says, hey, we'll yes. cut you off if you keep talk, doing the nuclear talk, then Russia yeah, yes, and does India. kind of have to yes. Yeah, and India, yeah. Mm-hmm. India, yeah, so, they're shipping yeah, oil because and of so the, forth the, to India. The Western China. sanctions mm-hmm. have been hitting Russia pretty hard in terms of its access to capital and resources. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. So it's good news in that sense. The supply chain should stabilize and it's possible it'll flow on into inflation, which will also impact the supply chain. So there's some good news there coming up. All right. Uh, we don't have a Tech Bytes today, so we'll just wrap up. Uh, Greg, if folks want to find you, are you still on Twitter, given all, everything going on with Twitter? <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter. I think uh, ultimately, as somebody who's sort of been on Twitter for 15 years or something ridiculous, these things come and go every three or four years and everybody runs off somewhere and then eventually comes back. So I'm, I think this time, if, if Twitter doesn't survive, I'll probably just stop being on social media. <laughs> I did pay for it, though. Uh, mainly because I'm I'm a big don't like ads and I'm willing to pay to get rid of them. So I did actually pay for Twitter to stop seeing ads. And even though I have them in Tweetbot, I do also use the Twitter clients occasionally and I 
feel that having that there, I just the ads are just so because I don't look at them all the time, I've got no way of filtering them. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Yep. Yeah. When you don't look at ads because you pay for a YouTube subscription and you blah, 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 then all of a sudden when the ad comes up, they get right in your head. So I can't handle ads now, which is sad, but yeah. So you got the blue check to not have ads, okay. That's it, yeah. Got it. And what's mm-hmm. your handle? It's at Ethereal Mind, which is my old thing. And don't forget, at Packet Pushes, if you want to follow us, every time we publish a show, it goes out there. Yeah. Uh, I'm still on Twitter, Drew Conry Murray. I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM. Uh, I may check out Mastodon because I'm hearing a lot of people talking about it and going there. So I want to go stake my territory out. And if I hit there, I'll let you know. But uh, in the meantime, uh, if you enjoyed this uh, Network Break show, you can hear more on Spotify. You can leave a recommendation on Apple Podcasts or share a link with your colleague. As always, thanks for listening.